This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. Last week, uh, I was talking about All India Institute of Medical Sciences. and its early history i propose to stay with the episodes from contemporary india this week as well in fact uh, i wish to take you back and forth with regard to something that's going to happen in a while in a couple of days perhaps the ipo initial public offering of lic or the life insurance corporation of india now i don't normally feature or or speak about um, economic history a great deal and very little in fact about uh, history of share market and so forth but uh, i am given to understand that uh, india's financial markets are about to see a milestone event which is the listing of insurance giant life insurance corporation in uh, the stock exchange i am told that the the initial public offering may uh, probably change the very history and character of share market and uh, of popular investment investor portfolios will change when lic shares start trading on stock exchange no investor can possibly ignore the market leader in life insurance which has over 2/3 of the market share so there's several reasons really let me first give you a few more reasons and then i propose to take you back to a history of life insurance i'll talk about the early history of life insurance in london in the 19th century to put the development in perspective and its expansion subsequently to the united states i'll also briefly um, refer to the development of marine insurance and fire insurance which in fact were the predecessors of general insurance as a business and finally i'll come back to the history of life insurance in india which is when i propose to conclude so why really is this um, lic ipo going to be such a great development according to those who understand uh, the market Uh, another major reason uh, for this immense interest is um, what is called the the limited uh, reach of life insurance market in the country we are told that uh, the insurance premium to gdp ratio in india is at 3.7% and the global average is 7.23% it means that only 3.7% of uh, the gdp is uh, made up of insurance premium 
and uh, it is expected to rise if it is to match up to the global average and so on. Essentially, it means that most Indians have insufficient life insurance as compared to the citizens of other countries. Now, another reason why this LIC listing in the market is apparently going to be a game changer is uh, that it will change the benchmark indices. LIC could well be listed in standard and poor in BSE Sensex and Nifty 50 very soon. That in turn would mean that uh, some other major large cap company will be replaced by uh, LIC. Now, that will significantly change the portfolio of major investors. It's going to disrupt, in other words, the leadership of some other major company in the major share indices. Another reason is really the disclosure about the portfolio. So clearly, LIC invests something like rupees um, 39 trillion, according to to press reports, um, 39 trillion more than the entire mutual fund industry put together. In other words, LIC is the biggest investor in government bonds and equity assets. So LIC will have to make quarterly disclosures on its financials, that is, after every three months. So those who study market will now get a great deal of information about the changes and performances in LIC's portfolio, about how really the government funds are functioning. So these are um, some of uh, the insights on why it is such a major development and indeed the entire stock market uh, or those who deal with shares and generally are interested are extremely um, excited and look forward to the initial offerings of LIC. But that really um, is not our territory. As students of history, our territory is about how this moment came about, which is what I propose to talk about uh, now. Now, of course, it is hard to imagine a time or life when insurance did not exist. Human beings naturally would have to budget for protection against sudden loss of resources or of life, even in the remote past. Since, um, for instance, a fire, flood, or other natural disasters would often appear at short notice. The idea of saving for the future may well be called insurance against the possibility of of, uh, accidents or loss of regular income. More specifically, there was the provision of bottomry contract in marine law. It broadly referred to an exemption for ship owners from repaying loans if they lost the ships for any one or more reasons 
listed in the contract they had with their lenders. Now, typically, they would uh, pawn those ships as uh, a security against the loan. But uh, the history of general insurance or life insurance really begins in the city of London in the 19th century. Now, that, of course, um, was the general insurance. Uh, It may not be a bad idea at uh, the stage to revisit uh, the predecessors of general insurance, as in marine insurance and fire insurance. I'll briefly take you to the history of Lloyd's, the company, the name of which you, of course, immediately remember, Lloyd's, as in Lloyd's Bank and so forth. How did Lloyd's come about? Now, of all the institutions in the city of London, Lloyd's is one of the best known by its name, as I said. It was natural, really, that uh, marine insurance, which Lloyd's dealt with, should have been the earliest form of providing against future loss. The risks of transport by sea were both considerable and conspicuous, and a ship and its cargo formed a unit that could be measured and valued. The value was very high for the size of the unit. In Italy, in medieval times, the bill of exchange, marine insurance was developed to a stage which could recognizably be now called modern. For instance, some of the terms um, which Lloyd's would later come to use were born in Italy. Take the phrase, for instance, and I quote, in the name of God, Amen. In Italian, it is all known, di Dio, Amen. The practice of insurance spread rapidly. In Bruges, in Belgium, in the 14th century, extensive marine insurance was conducted. And in England, Merchants were following foreign example by the end of the 15th century. Policies were issued by individuals. They took their risks singly or in groups, but they tended naturally to congregate together, to exchange news and opinions, to be accessible in a recognized center to those who sought their advice or services. So these were the early underwriters. And they acquired the name of Lloyd's, by which they were to become known later all over the world. There are many references in the 17th century to public auctions of ships, These auctions took place in various coffee houses, which were so notable a feature of business as well as social life of London during those times. And I have had a separate episode in the past on London coffee houses as places of business. 
I'll recommend that you go back to it when you have time. At first, Lloyd's was no more than one such coffee house. The first printed record of Lloyd's was found in 1688. The printed record about Lloyd's, earliest of it, dates back to 1688, which was five years before the establishment of the Bank of England. In that year, an advertisement in the London Gazette referred to a burglary of some valuables and promised that, I quote, whoever gives notice of them at Mr. Edward Lloyd's coffee house in Tower Street shall have a guinea reward, unquote. Lloyd was clearly established in business before that time. And there's no doubt it was already fostering the use of um, his house by the marine underwriters. Now, there's little enough record of Lloyd himself. It probably can be inferred that he was a good businessman. He appears to have set himself out to keep and develop the goodwill of his specialized customers. But when he moved to a larger place in 1691, immortality on the scale which waited him was quite outside his imagination. In 1696, um, there was the Licensing Act of 1695. Um, he increased the popularity of his house by launching a tri-weekly newspaper, Lloyd's News. In Lloyd's News, there was a diversity of foreign and domestic news, of course, but there was a good deal of shipping intelligence. The paper had a life of only a few months, as a, a matter of fact. The House of Lords received a petition from the Quakers that they may be freed from all offices. They were complained against, the Quakers complained against uh, that newspaper in, in short. The Parliament was not going to, to forgive this lapse. Lloyds himself died in 1713, but the coffee house under a new management, continued to thrive. And the name had already become so valuable as an asset that the new management decided to continue the name. By now, fire insurance had been developing in these early days of Lloyd's. And the whole scope of insurance business was enlarging rapidly. Now, marine insurance business mainly attracted men who, who now sought to launch the joint stock insurance ventures. And there were these two great corporations, the Royal Exchange and the London, um, which were given in their charters a monopoly of corporate marine insurance. Now, naturally, the individual underwriters who, who used to hang around Lloyd's 
were anxious. But there was really uh, no need for uh, them to be anxious. The new companies started with a number of disadvantages. For instance, they they had insufficient capital. The public was uh, disillusioned um, as to the the virtues of joint stock organization and so on and so forth. It had become clear within a short period that the older writers, underwriters really, had little to fear from their competition. Just as the Bank of England's virtual monopoly of joint stock banking gave the private bankers a century of free development, so the monopoly of the new companies of marine insurance made possible the growth of Lloyd's. But of course, that's marine insurance and fire insurance and Lloyd's. Um, and I do not propose to, to focus too much on the precursors of life and general insurance, which is uh, really our concern at the moment. Marine insurance was already very well established. Lloyd's had outgrown their coffee house and moved into the Royal Exchange. But the two chartered companies, the London and the Royal Exchange, um, so far as joint stock companies were concerned, had not pressed their advantage and handled only a small percentage of the business. Fire insurance, which in the natural order of things had come next after marine in the evolution of insurance, that is, had a respectable and long history. Life insurance was rather new. Frankly, it had to wait for the scientific measure of mortality rates and of life expectancy. Dr. Price, who had done more than anyone else to put life insurance on an honestly statistical footing, had died only nine years before. Marine fire and life. The first years of the new century, and I'm talking here about the 19th century, or almost the first half of it, were to be spent in the development of these three branches of insurance. Now, the first item was the struggle to break the marine monopoly of the Royal Exchange and the London insurer. Sir Frederick Eden, the moving spirit behind the Globe Insurance Company, sought a charter for the company in 1799. The application was declined. Another application was declined in 1803. Undeterred, Eden formed his company along the lines adopted by several fire and life companies, which was by deed of settlement. This was really a poor substitute for incorporation by charter. It did not give limited liability and uh, had no legal recognition. But such companies as the Equitable had uh, demonstrated that it could be yet 
a viable manner of handling business. And in any case, Eden still pressed for a charter for his globe. In 1806, upon the third attempt, the objects of the company for which a charter was sought had included marine insurance. And naturally, the granting of a charter was opposed as uh, an infringement on the rights of those two chartered companies. Now, the marine monopoly had continued throughout a period in which overseas trade was growing rapidly. The hazards of war with France, and these were the Napoleonic War years, early years of the 19th century. The hazards of the war with France were bringing increased experience and increased profit to the underwriters. And uh, despite the difficulties of insuring cargoes over very long distance, when communication was still hardly faster than cargoes themselves, marine insurance offered an opportunity for development. And the rather sluggish companies and the members of Lloyd's They were much more energetic, but they were hampered by their unreformed procedure. So they could not exploit those prospects of development. 1806 didn't work out to satisfaction, but in 1810, the globe was joined by a further group, this time seeking a charter for a bigger company. A select committee of the House of Commons reported in favor of breaking the monopoly. The principles of laissez-faire were gaining ground. But again, the attempt failed. Another 14 years passed before another protagonist, the Alliance, in which Nathan Rothschild, Sir Moses Montefiore, and Samuel Gurney were associated, successfully petitioned for the repeal of those parts of the Bubble Act, which had given the two companies their privileged positions. Those two had fought for their privileges to the end, and Lloyd's had supported them. Although some members of Lloyd's had joined the challenging projects, Of course, their fears were unjustified, and it would be shown in the subsequent histories of Lloyd's and of those two companies as well. Insurance development was still to turn largely on the question of organization. With Alliance's triumph, the interest turns from Marines to fire and life and from the breaking of a century-old monopoly of chartered status to the evolution of joint stock company formation into its modern shape. Fire and life insurance had been expanding rapidly. In fire insurance in particular, the acceleration of large-scale industrial organization, which of course came up during the Industrial Revolution, was producing substantially larger demands on insurance resources. 
But it may be remarked at the stage that fire insurance has a comparatively trouble-free record in the 19th century. It was life insurance which initially suffered from bad management and from fraud. These were the chief problems of insurance development. The first 10 years of the century saw a flurry of activity in the formation of new fire and life companies. Some of them, including the Atlas, the North British, and the Eagle, were destined to have distinguished, very distinguished careers in future. But as was inevitable, when there was no kind of check on the credentials of promoters or upon the stability of their promotions, there were other companies that were badly conceived and badly managed. And some were downright frauds. The difficulties of large-scale organization had so far been met by formation under deed of settlement and also by the adoption of mutual principle. But in insurance, as in other commercial activities, the need for joint stock organization on legally recognized lines was becoming widely acknowledged. And the principle of laissez-faire encouraged the tendency. So, in 1841, there was a select committee Gladstone, as uh, its chairman, examined the whole question, including the abuses that were disclosed in some of the insurance companies. In 1844, the first modern company legislation was introduced by Gladstone, by Gladstone himself, who is now the president of the Board of Trade. Unfortunately, the first Companies Act did little or nothing towards the insurance reforms, which were obviously necessary. And pressure continued to grow for further action, especially in respect of life insurance. In 1853, a select committee on assurance association was appointed and made recommendations. The new Companies Acts of 1856 and 1862 still gave no separate treatment for life insurance. The problem of structure had by now been somewhat resolved, but uh, the problem of control and management was not handled clearly yet until 1870. That was when, in 1870, the Life Assurance Companies Act was passed. The year before, the Albert Life Assurance Company had failed, absorbing in its 30 years life some 26 other offices. So the 1870 Act, which provided, among other things, that any new life insurance company must deposit 20,000 pounds with the Chancery Court and that every company transacting other business in addition to life must keep its life funds separate. 
did good work and indeed served as a model for later legislation on other branches of insurance. So it took time. Legislation had been long delayed, but the act when it came was a quite unusually rewarding product. It took years to, to, be, to be made and to be passed, but it would be quite unfair to compare it with uh, the long evolution of the company legislation. But even so, the men who drafted the Life Assurance Companies Act clearly deserved well of their profession. Now, that really was a major milestone in the development of life insurance business in terms of its legal architecture. I take a detour at the stage and I would now like to come to the history of life insurance and insurance indeed in India. In India, insurance has a long history. There is a mention in the writing of Manu, it is said, of Yagyavalka and Kautilya. Indeed, uh, the motto of Life Insurance Corporation of India is Yoga Kshemam Bahamyaham. I'll carry the gains of your yoga and so forth. The writings talk in terms of pooling of resources, which in turn could be redistributed in terms of, uh, in times of, of disasters, such as fire, floods, epidemics, and famine. It probably could be a precursor to modern day insurance. Ancient India history has some traces of insurance, marine trade loans, and carriers contracts. But insurance in India along modern lines certainly drew heavily from other countries and particularly from England, which is what we've been talking about so far. Insurance in India came roughly um, around the same time as it did in England, when I'm talking about life insurance, that is, 1818 was when Oriental Life Insurance Company in Calcutta was established. This company failed in 1834. In 1829, there was a Madras Equitable. They started life insurance business in the Madras Presidency. 1870, 1870, as I said, was when the British Insurance Act was enacted. And uh, in the last three decades of the 19th century, we had uh, a number of insurance companies coming up. The Bombay Mutual came up in um, 1871, Oriental in 1874, and Empire of India in 1897. All of these three were uh, launched in the Bombay Presidency. That period, however, was uh, really dominated by foreign insurance companies, which did business in India. Life Insurance, Albert Life Insurance, Royal Insurance, Liverpool and London Globe Insurance, and the Indian offices uh, were set up um, and so forth. In 1914, 
the government of India started uh, publishing the returns of insurance companies in India. So Indian Life Assurance Companies Act 1912 was the first statutory measure, legal measure, to regulate the life insurance business. In 1928, the Indian Insurance Companies Act was enacted to enable the government to collect statistical data about both life and non-life business transacted in India by Indian as well as foreign companies. In 1938, the legislation was um, further improved and amended by the Insurance Act of 1938, which uh, now had comprehensive provisions for effective control over the insurers. In 1950, there was the Insurance Amendment Act and it abolished principal agencies. However, there was a large number of insurance companies and the level of competition was quite high. An ordinance was issued in 1956 and that was a milestone ordinance. 19th January 1956. The life insurance sector was nationalized and Life Insurance Corporation or LIC came into being. The LIC absorbed 154 Indian, 16 non-Indian insurers and also 75 provident societies which makes for 245 Indian and foreign insurers in all. The LIC had monopoly business until the late 90s, when the insurance sector was finally made open to private players. In 1968, the Insurance Act was uh, amended to regulate investments and set minimum solvency margins. In 72, there was the General Insurance Business Act. The General Insurance Business was nationalized uh, from January 73. 107 insurers were amalgamated, grouped together really into four companies, National Insurance, New India Assurance, Oriental Insurance Company and United India Insurance Company. Now, last 20 years, the new millennium has seen insurance business come a full circle. The sector had reopened once again in the early 1990s and the last decade has seen opened up the sector opening up even more. The government set up a committee in 1993 under the chairmanship of R.N. Malhotra, who was a former governor of Reserve Bank of India, the Central Bank of India, that is. The committee proposed recommendations for reforms in the insurance sector. The report of the Malhotra Commission was submitted in 1994 and following its recommendations, 
the Insurance Regulatory and Development Authority or IRDA came to be built as an autonomous body with the responsibility to regulate and develop the insurance industry. Now, the IRDA further opened up the insurance market in 2000 with uh, application from foreign players. Foreign companies were allowed up to 26% of ownership. Today, there are 34, and the statistics could be a little dicey, 34 general insurance companies uh, and uh, the insurance sector at the moment is a colossal sector and growing at a speedy rate of 15 to 20%. Now, a well-developed and evolved insurance sector is a boon, says the IRDA, for economic development. It provides long-term funds for infrastructure development, and it at the same time strengthens the risk-taking ability or increases, I suppose, and also protects and promotes the risk-taking ability in the country. Now, that, in short, was a flashback to the early history of insurance, of fire insurance, of life insurance, and of general insurance in the world, particularly in London and England, from where uh, the insurance companies and insurance business in India has borrowed heavily since the early 19th century. I wish the LIC of India stupendous success in its IPO offering. And that's all in this episode of History Chatter. This is Anirban. I look forward to talking to you once again next week.